We are in a series right now where we're talking about unity. Unity is what you call it when you take a bunch of things that are separate and try to make them one thing. You try to make them act together instead of act separately. What it takes to do that, what they call it when that happens, that act, that thing is called unity, and that's what we're talking about right now as a church. When we talk about unity, something like this, I think we presume we're doing it because it makes our lives better. We think uh, maybe the reason we would talk about this is because if, if, if we can have unity and we can work towards it, then it actually makes us happier people. It makes our lives easier. We've done a pretty good job of making the Bible fairly practical sometimes in, in churches, and I think the result of that, though, is that we get so used to that that uh, if we read something in the Bible or hear something and it doesn't seem immediately to connect with how it would make our life easier or better, our quality of life, our happiness and our enjoyment right away, well, a lot of times go, oh, I must just not understand the context of this, and, you know, or, or we go, uh, you know, it's probably just not good preaching, you know, otherwise it would be more practical, it would, it would be easier to apply. Practical is very important to us. Uh, practical things, is that rain? Man, it rains here? I'm just kidding. Uh, practical things are uh, very important to us. They help us figure out how to live our daily lives better. Um, Many years ago, um, newspapers were beginning to realize after the Second World War that they had this growing demographic of people that they could appeal to. Uh, they were called housewives. And there were uh, women who were, who were at home who were picking up the newspaper and looking at it and weren't quite as interested in a lot of the news that was being reported on. And so one of the things that newspapers began publishing, passing around, and syndicating was advice columns. Advice columns were one of the ways that uh, you could find something to look at and read in a paper that might seem to apply a little bit more to your daily life than just what's going on in some other part of the world or some part of your government. Probably one of the best known ones of these is um, Dear Abby. Um, I joke with my wife about this column because she has a friend named Abby and I think she just asks this friend like stuff and then whatever they tell her, that's what she does. So it's like, you know, where's the best place to go to like, you know, to see this? And she goes, well, she just asks Abby and then Abby tells her and then we go do that thing. We like literally look nowhere else. So ask Abby means something a little different in my life and she usually doesn't steer us wrong, but when she does, we hold her responsible. But Dear Abby is great because uh, it's a great example of what this looked like, right? Uh, people would write into newspapers and publications, and then a really good columnist who could give advice would be able to give this great combination of, of practical and usually kind of funny um, and relevant advice in a very pithy, short little way, uh, often being able to be a little bit more brutally honest than you would be with a friend that you were talking to in person. Dear Abby, which is better, to go to a school dance with a creep or to sit at home? Signed, all shook up. Dear shook up, go with the creep and look over the crop. <laughs> yeah, okay, okay, that's pretty practical. Dear Abby, my boyfriend is going to be 20 years old next month. I'd like to give him something nice for his birthday. What do you think he'd like? Dear Carol, never mind what he'd like, give him a tie. <laughs> Dear Abby, I'm going to have to read this one to you because it's longer than I can fit on a slide. About four months ago, the house across the street was sold to a father and son, or so we thought. 
Um, we later learned that it was an older man, and about 50, and a young fellow, about 24. This was a respectable neighborhood before this odd couple moved in. They have all sorts of strange-looking company. Men who look like women, women who look like men, blacks, whites, Indians. Yesterday, I even saw two nuns go in there. Abby, these weirdos are wrecking our property values. How do we improve the quality of this once respectable neighborhood? Dear up, you could move. <clears throat> That's pretty true. Advice columns were great because of their ability to speak with something called practicality, the ability to speak to the things that were going on in people's lives. And as you, as you read them and you read the advice, you thought, you know, I could actually do that. In fact, that was the best thing about the advice, I think, was it was things that people could actually do. They could actually solve their problems if they just took these steps and did these things. That is what it looks like to be practical. And I think practical is important to us. And like I said, when we look at the Bible and we uh, talk about how the Bible relates to our lives, we, honest, we are often mistaken these two very similar things, practical or relevant. Uh, practical being this immediately applies to my life and hopefully it's going to make it better in some good qualitative way. Like I enjoy my life now more because of this advice I've been given, this way I'm going to live, these things that I'm going to do, these steps I'm going to take moving forward. The problem is the Bible isn't always practical. The things that God calls us to do aren't always practical. The things Jesus called people to do when they chose to follow him weren't always practical. In fact, many of the times, the very reason why it would say that a person would walk away from Jesus sad is because he challenged them and called them to something that wasn't exactly going to make their life easier or make them happier tomorrow. But because they couldn't res respond to the call positively, it said they simply would walk away sad because they just weren't up to doing it. There's a difference, though, between uh, whether or not the Bible's always practical and whether or not the Bible's always relevant. I would argue that the Bible is always relevant. Relevant meaning it relates to what's going on now. It does. One of the greatest arguments for the veracity and the truth of Scripture is the fact that you, you look to Scripture at any time, in any place, in any situation, and you see us in it. You see this world in it. You see the things that we are dealing with and frustrated by and taking joy in found within its pages because it is the truth of God and because that God created us and this world around us before it fell into sin. The Bible is relevant. And when we talk about something like unity, what we're talking about, we said last week, was not necessarily something that makes our lives easier. In fact, the example that we gave last week that Paul gives in the first part of, our, of chapter 4 of Ephesians is he says that if you want unity, you have to commit to something called peace. And if you want peace with each other, then you have to shackle yourself. You have to handcuff yourself. For those of you who may have been listening online last week, we realized this after the fact and didn't know I was being handcuffed on stage. My apologies. I was being handcuffed by a very enthusiastic helper. And the result of that was hopefully you guys got to see this is what it looks like 
looks like the bonds of peace, says Paul, the handcuffs, the shackles of peace, meaning that if we want peace with each other, we have to choose to limit ourselves. There are things that I want to think that I'm going to try not to think. There are things I want to say that I'm going to choose not to say. There are things that I want to do that I'm going to choose not to do. Why? Because I want peace with people around me. But that's not the most practical way to live. That's not the most practical advice. In fact, when you talk about unity and you talk about it being hard, we come to realize this is not rocket science, that at any point in any relationship that you're in in your life, you could simply choose to walk away. That's actually the easiest thing to do. It's why no matter how relevant the issue of unity might be, it's still hard to talk through practically because in any marriage, even with any child, with any friendship, in any job, with any group of people that you're close with, you learn very quickly you could simply walk away and it would be easier. I've talked to a lot of people over the last few weeks about this topic of unity. Some have been convicted, others have just wanted to talk about all those other people who don't have unity, how they feel sorry for them. If you wanna know how hard you're working at having unity, here's a little test. It's a pretty simple one. This is how you know if you're having unity with those around you. Figure out first what your group is. What is your group? We all have different groups. We all have different groups of people that we identify with, and they could be many different types of things. It may be a political party. It may be your very large and very connected family. It may be your very small and connected family. It may be your small group. It may be a close group of friends that you've known for much of your life. It may even be people that you know of a certain age, whether young or old or a specific life stage, because they are going through what you're going through, and they get you like no one else does. Now ask yourself this, once you know what your group is, that you think of as, this is kind of my group, this is where I put myself, these are the people that are my people, the question is this, how hard am I trying to make life work with people outside of my group? That's how you know how hard you're working at unity currently in life. See, it's easy to look at the people that we're closest to, most comfortable with, and say, man, I so am grateful that I have this kind of unity present in my life. But that's not what that is. That's how you know if you're working towards it or not. If this is a new concept to you or one that, uh, that you've been working at for quite some time. And this morning, as we talk about something incredibly relevant, even if it doesn't feel like it makes your life practically much easier, we're going to look at one verse, and I'm going to do my best my kid, or just, sorry, three verses. I'm going to do the best that I can. Oh, I didn't change my passage thing down there. So it isn't actually 4, 1 through 3. It's actually going to be 4, 4, and 5 and 6. So if you have a Bible, you can open it to Ephesians chapter 4. And uh, we're going to be in this little, little group of, of verses right here. Ephesians 4, 4, 5, and 6 says this, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. That is a lot of repetition. If you're wondering why we called the sermon series One, 
Look no further. Your questions have all been answered. In these few verses, Paul is telling us, we're moving from the what, which was last week. What is unity? What does it look like? This is what it looks like, the bonds of peace. What, how do we get to it? Or really kind of the how to, the how and the what. Now we are talking about the why. Why on earth would we take it upon ourselves, actually try to have this thing called unity with these people around us here in the church? Paul's answer is one that is a little hard for us to swallow because his answer is theology, which is essentially a, a, a big way of saying because God says so. If you're a parent, you know that almost feels like the last resort, right? If you get to a point where you have to say, because I said so, right? Every other appeal didn't work, fine, the end. I don't care. Listen, because I said so, now go. And so what we look at this morning and looking at this is the theology, God telling us the reason that you have unity is because of who I made you to be and because I have decided that you all are going to be the same. Amen. Amen. I want to look at this one little, most commentators will break this up into three parts. They'll say, this is a creed. This is kind of a, a something that was probably meant to be read, recited at churches. This, this thing that you can remember, it's why you have the repetition. It's why you have the same terms. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. This is the first portion of this. There is one body, meaning one group of people that are united together. So the question uh, some might ask is, okay, so is the body, the body is the church, there is one body, us, brought together, he'll elaborate that as Pastor Matt looks next week at the different parts of the body of Christ, and the body of Christ is the church, he is the head, we're the body. And one of the questions you might have is, you know, okay, so does that mean that like each one of these churches all around our country is a, is a body, its own little body, right? Its own separate body of Christ, because that's how we think of the church, right? The church isn't this big global thing. It's this thing that we're a part of here in this room where you, if you, you know, you leave and go be a part of another church. Or you come from another church maybe because you moved away. You grew up in another church and then you're there. These are different bodies. What we find is that no, it's actually all intended to be the same group. In Ephesians 3, he says this, the mystery this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So he's referring to the body in Ephesians as a single thing, meaning when you become a believer and are baptized and you become a part of the church, you're a part of a singular body. So it doesn't matter what church you go to, you're part of the same body. It means that we're all connected in that way. And so even if you go from one place to another for whatever reason, and we have our all distinctive sort of differences and rules and methods and habits and practices and things like that, that in the end, it doesn't change the fact that what God says, the way he created us and designed us is, you're going to be one body together. So the way God created things and set things up is that we're not meant to exist as individuals, and we're not even meant to exist as separate churches. We're all meant to be one corporate group of people, one body together. Now, what that looked like at the time that he was writing was that obviously there were different 
groups, different churches based on the area that you lived in because you couldn't go that far. You couldn't get very far. But the idea is not that the church in Ephesus and the church in Philippi are, are opponents, are enemies, are battling against each other, are fighting and are competing with one another. No, the idea was we're all part of the same body. We're simply in different locations. The Gentiles and Jews were a part of the same body. There was no way to overstate how big of a deal it was that in the early church that they forced the Gentiles and the Jews to do church together. There is no way to overstate how big of a deal that was. These people had so much, so much to divide them, so many things that could get in the way from them having unity. And it would have been so much easier to say, let's just, call, let's just do it, guys. Gentile church, Jewish church, let's be done, move forward, and everybody's going to be a lot happier in the end. But it says here in Ephesians 6 that they're actually brought together, which means that these things like preferences and these things like customs and traditions and even backgrounds should not divide us, even if they make us distinctive from one another. There's one body and there's one spirit. So God has set things up in such a way that we are all part of one body together. That's why we strive for unity. We also are all empowered by one spirit. What does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit empowers and fills everything that we do. It means all the good things that you see happening. It means all the good things that you see happening are happening because the Holy Spirit has made those things happen. The work of the Holy Spirit is what accomplishes all the things that really ultimately matter here in the church. The baptisms we celebrate, the people and the families that are coming to faith, the people being discipled, the healing in the marriages, the sin being defeated, the fears being overcome, the strongholds being broken down. These things are all the work of the Holy Spirit, not the efforts of a bunch of people, which, frankly, is a pretty crazy thought in modern-day church. Because in modern-day church, while the Holy Spirit is such a handy thing to have on hand and to be able to talk about when you want to talk about why you don't understand the way things are going in your life, maybe, or why it feels like you might have an opponent or someone out to get you, sometimes it seems, we generally look to the things that we physically can focus on us doing, and then we assume that all the good things that happen or whatever happens in the church is happening because of that stuff, because of us. But the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit is the one that actually, actually makes things happen in the church, not just the efforts and the works of man. At least that's good theology. So what that means is I'm no more powerful or capable than any of you are. One church isn't more powerful or capable than another church. The difficulty with us is the things that we put in the place of the Holy Spirit and depend on those things. We say, well, it could be the Holy Spirit, or it could just be really great leadership. It could be the Holy Spirit, or it could be, these are just great ministries. It could be the Holy Spirit at work, or it could be, we have great families, and these great, amazing families are just causing amazing things to happen in our city, in our church, in our community. We can say, we've got great parenting happening here. We've got great marriages, strong, vibrant marriages. 
There are so many things that we can point to. We've, we've leveraged and, and utilized and, and, and taken advantage of great resources and, and, and we've become good leaders. And the result of that is the effectiveness, all these things that we see happening maybe that we like that are happening. We think it's those things that actually get stuff done in the church. Well, the problem with all of those things is that, is that I do my things and you do your things. I'm reading this book, you're reading that book. You, act, you see it this way, I see it that way. Uh, all of the, much of the division that we experience is because our confidence is in things that are not the Holy Spirit to get things done. If we can trust in the Holy Spirit to get things done, then we can be more easily unified together. Because good news, everybody, we all have the same Holy Spirit dwelling and living inside of us. The same Holy Spirit is dwelling in you that is dwelling in me. There are not multiple spirits. There is one that dwells inside of all of us. And the good news is it empowers what we do. If you were to sit in a staff meeting at this church and, and here and you were to hear us talk about what we call our ministry highlights, what you would most often hear is us sharing things with almost a sense of surprise. Some might say it's low expectations, but we would say it's because we look and we go, man, like, it doesn't feel like I did that thing. It feels as though God did this thing. And there's a point in your life, and you all probably know how that feels, when you want to be the one doing things. You want to know that you, you figured it out. You did things a certain way. You do want to think that it's your amazing parenting, your amazing marriage, your amazing work ethic, your amazing integrity, your amazing background and history that make you as effective as you are, that make you have the impact that you have in this world or in people's lives or in the church, when in reality, the Holy Spirit empowers everything. That's why Jesus could say to his disciples, good news, I'm going, but someone is coming who is going to do far more than I've done for you. This counselor who will come will empower you to do great things, things that are far greater than you've even seen done with me. Whoa, those guys walked around and saw miracles from Jesus himself. And yet this Holy Spirit is going to do more and be better. There have been a shocking number of churches in recent years whose pastors have been embroiled in like, in like these scandals. And each one has been this context for absolutely explosive growth. I'm talking about churches that just get like crazy big and become crazy famous and crazy well-known. They write books, they give seminars, they teach people how to be good churches, how to be good leaders, how to do things well. And people look at them and say, why would I listen to this person? Why would I do this thing? Because look at all the fruits. Look at everything that's coming and happening. And yet what we've seen in the last several years is leaders leader after leader after leader embroiled in conflict and, and, and sort of uh, like lifestyle choices and behavior and sinful things that have caused them to fall from grace. And as a result, people looking and going, oh, wait a second. So like, and then starting to look at the fruit of the thing and actually starting to realize that I'll never forget that one of the biggest churches, uh, really like the, one of the first or if not the first megachurch, Willow Creek, uh, produced this report like 10 years ago. And in, in my world, that's an exciting thing. And they produced a report like 10 years ago, and it was called the Reveal uh, Report. And what it said was they said, we looked at all these things we're doing and all these ministries and all these people are coming and everyone's connected and our churches are growing and we're making campuses and all these different things. But when we started to talk with people and started to look into people's lives, we were, we were lamenting the fact that we realized that people were actually not growing spiritually. They said, I feel connected, I feel excited, I feel like I belong, I feel like I'm a part of something, I feel like I even have community. I'm serving, I'm giving, I'm doing all these things, but not actually growing. 
And they began to realize at that time that they had to reevaluate everything that they were doing because while they knew they were doing certain kinds of things well, they weren't sure that they were seeing the Holy Spirit doing the things that they wanted to see happen. And the truth is, if you understand who it is that makes growth happen, that makes change happen, that makes things happen, and that that is the Holy Spirit, then you understand that without the Holy Spirit, a thing is just a corpse. Without the Holy Spirit, a thing is just a kind of a body moving around, not empowered, not given life, not able to accomplish much. Whenever I think of what it's like for a person to try to do things and be things without relying on the single Holy Spirit that we share with one another, I think of this movie, Weekend at Bernie's. <laughs> How they stretch this concept into a whole movie, I don't know, but it is worth watching. Two men go to their boss's beach house, he, he dies suddenly, and then for some reason, in order to either enjoy the benefits of the beach house or I think get through some kind of crazy criminal situation that they have to get out of with their lives, they decide to make it appear as though he's still alive. And they put him in cars with them and get on boats with him and they tie his hands up so he waves at people and they walk around with him, go into banks, things like that. And the entire movie is basically just them making this guy appear like he's actually alive. And they actually kind of keep your interest. There, guys, there was a sequel. <laughs> Without the Holy Spirit in a church empowering people, filling people, doing things. We're just a bunch of empty bodies. They might be busy at work, but the good news is that we all have the same spirit empowering what we're doing. And that is a theological truth that dictates why we have unity. It also says that we have one hope, and that one hope points to our one calling. Our calling is based on this hope, and the hope means that we're all looking forward to the same thing. We don't have our own individual versions of heaven to look forward to or glory to look forward to. We get to have hope in the fact that we look ahead to sharing the same hope with one another of the kingdom of God. New life found in him, and that hope is a big deal. It binds us together. In the end of things, in the end, the things that divide us most are different goals. I'm wanting this thing, you're wanting that thing. I'm working towards this thing, you're working towards that thing. I think God wants to see the church do this. You think God wants to see the church do that. I think the world should look this way. You think the world should look that way. This is the difference between a team and a bunch of just people. A team is a group of people who actually want the same thing and are working toward the same thing together. The good news for the Christian is that in the end, we are all ending up in the same place. And we have a hope of something that is so far better than anything we've ever experienced that we work collectively knowing in unity that we're all working towards the same hope. And if I'm speaking to those of you who are who are older, you would attest to the fact, you would attest to the fact that the more life that you live, the more you realize how good that thing you look forward to in the end is going to be. I talk to people later in life who even though uh, time feels like a thing more in the past than in the future, and often will have these wonderful, amazing lives that looked back on and, and, and enjoyed and appreciated, will still seem more interested in the thing they're hoping for that's coming 
their eyes are fixed on it more firmly. The good news is, our theology tells us that we all have the same hope that we're looking towards and working towards. It goes on to tell us that there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Basically telling us that this God, our God, is the God of, of all. So this is written to a group of churches and people that are living under the rule of, of the Roman Empire. And at that time, your Lord, the person that you served, said a lot about who you were. This meant a lot, one Lord, for all of us meant a lot to both the slave who didn't really like living in Rome and the Roman centurion or general or person in the guard who had lived very well under Roman rule. Those guys don't serve different lords. They serve the same Lord, which is often good news for the slave and kind of hard news for the centurion who had really enjoyed being a part of the Roman Empire. We don't all pick and serve different gods, different lords. We all serve the same one, and he's in charge of our life. We have one faith. Faith isn't creed. It isn't uh, stated beliefs. Faith is confidence in Jesus for life. So we all have confidence in the same thing that's going to bring us life. That's a pretty good thing. That gives us quite a bit to have in common, doesn't it? That we all have confidence in Jesus in order for us to live. And there is nothing else that gives us life other than him. We have one baptism. Baptism was a public, generally at the time, adult, uh, like an adult public declaration of faith. And so there was no way that you became a Christian and became a part of the church without at some point standing up in front of everybody and publicly out there, not hidden behind even in the walls of the church, saying, I profess Jesus is my Lord I'm dying and being, being uh, risen again into new life. We've all endured and had that baptism. We've all participated, Paul is writing to the church, in that baptism. You all weren't baptized into different churches, under different lords, through different faiths. There aren't different seasons of your life where you go back and get baptized again because you moved around or because you did something new. You are, you are all under this same one baptism. He goes on, there is one God and Father of all, is over all, through all, and in all. When it comes to theology, there is no greater thing to talk about than God himself. Really the truest and best subject of theology. And this is a very simple way of explaining just how big God is. We have one God. He is our Father. He is not distant and disconnected from us in all of his greatness and, and, and capability, but he is our Father, loving us, there with us and present with us. In fact, he is a God who is over all, which means he controls. He is in control. Good news. He is in control, this one God. How much of disunity comes from us and our fear of the things that we have to do in order to be able to know that there's some sense of control that things will go okay. That he is through all, which means he is the providence of God is a, is a real thing. God, is, God knows what's happening. God, God understands what's happening. And that's a really big deal. Through all the things that happen in life, God is present with you. 
And he is in all. He is in all of those things in your life. We all share those truths about God. This is theology. This is Paul telling the church, here's why you guys have no choice but to pursue unity together. Because in all the most important things, you are the same. You are empowered by the very same Holy Spirit. You are all physically part of the same body together. You are looking ahead and looking forward to one shared hope with each other that will far outweigh anything that you experience in this life. You have one God who doesn't change. At the time, gods represented different things. There was the God of justice, this idea of a God who maybe would be more compassionate, this idea of a God of war, a God of fertility, uh, you know, God of, God of water, of the sun. You had different gods emphasizing different things. And much of the time, disunity comes from all having our version of God that we want to care about at that time, right? I care about justice. No, I care about grace. I care about compassion. I care about things being right. I care about people being loved. And we think that's this one-dimensional thing is what God wants us to care about and pursue right now. He is the same God, the God that we follow. We're united by that. When you talk about unity and you talk about these things, Uh, one of the things that we've said is that it is hard to do. It is hard to truly be separate people who are coming together united. There's all kinds of things that keep us from wanting to do it, and it seems like uh, the world that we live in gets more and more um, like a difficult place to try to have unity happen in. We need much more than just uh, a Dear Abby piece of advice on how to have unity with each other. And that advice probably coming from Dear Abby would not be on how to truly have unity with each other because in order for it to be practical and to make my life easier and better in the end, it's probably not going to be the right thing that brings unity to all of us. You know, what's interesting is that uh, there are lots of different types of people who have written advice columns in the past. And one of the most least known, uh, but I would argue maybe even most impactful, was uh, Dr. Martin Luther King who uh, actually wrote an advice column for a few years. In 1957, uh, this was in a, something that I read about in an article recently. It said, it may be possible, however, to aim for more than just the practical advice that we look for when we look at most advice columns. The most ambitious American advice columnist worked for less than two years. In 1957, Martin Luther King Jr. began writing Advice for Living a monthly column in Ebony Magazine. Readers asked him all kinds of questions, like whether playing rock and roll for a living was a sin, whether birth control was immoral, and how he felt about nuclear weapons. Installments poignantly aligned the mundane with the spiritual. He speculated on the nature of enduring love, bookended by ads for lustrous silk hair straightener. And yet some of his answers still feel entirely revolutionary. So ads for this column encouraged readers to let the man that led the Montgomery Bus boycott lead you into happier living. But happiness was not King's point. That's probably why he only wrote for two years. 
He often reminded readers that they were more than individuals. They were, in fact, pieces of a society. He asked a disgruntled parishioner to stay with the church and continue to sting its conscience. He told a woman who had just lost her five-year-old son to avoid self-pity and be about others. Perhaps most shockingly, he told a preacher in a small town, Mississippi, to risk martyrdom fighting Jim Crow as a Christian minister and a symbol of the new Negro. The author of this article, who's not a Christian, ultimately writes this at the end. They say, his words are hard to read and reconcile with the canonical advice column, which asks for its readers to do what is feasible. King asked instead for the barely possible. He was either the best advice columnist or the very worst. There's a reason that a preacher giving advice who was known for shaping the course of things in the world would only write for two years and people would be torn on whether they were the best at giving advice or maybe even the worst. It was because the true things that we need to do, the things that will really fix what's going on, the things that will really bring peace are revolutionary things. They're things that require sacrifice for us, some discomfort, asking and doing a lot of searching within, and ultimately, more than anything, require us to depend on the Holy Spirit and this one God who we serve collectively together. The call to unity is so crazy, nuts, and revolutionary that on one hand, Paul says, you all should be striving for it. But on the other hand, Jesus prays to the Father before his death saying, if these people are united, the miracle of that fact will show the world that you are real. The miracle of unity will show the world that God is who he says he is. And the Holy Spirit can make that happen. It's not easy. It requires some sacrifice on our part. But it is truly what is needed and it's truly what is good. Let's pray as we take communion and worship more together. Father, we are so grateful for who you are. I confess that so much of my life, I have um, done things thinking I was doing them because you told me to, because you said they were best and they were good, when really I was doing them because I thought they would make my life better. Following the teachings of Jesus, doing the things I learned about in church because I wanted better friendships, because I wanted a better marriage, because I wanted to be a better parent, because I wanted to be a better person. The practical things that helped me do that stuff. But Father, I thank you for the fact that despite the immaturity that I had in approaching you that way so much of the time, that you could show me and that you could show us, Lord. That there are things that you call us to that we don't do because they make us and our life more enjoyable, more pleasurable, and better. There are things you call us to because they are truly good they are things you call us to because this is the way you made us and to live any other way is to ignore that fact, God. God, as we take communion this morning, as we worship you corporately, would all of our differences fade away and melt away into the background? Would we, empowered by your Holy Spirit, worship you, the one true God? And as we do so, would we be united in that, Lord? It's in your name that we pray. Amen.
Amen.